privilege to be with you again once more. Uh, let's turn our hearts to prayer. Lord, we come to you tonight, hearts full of recognition that you are a holy God and we are an unholy people apart from you pouring your righteousness and holiness upon us. Lord, we confess that we need you, not just in little ways to top us up, but completely. We need you to renovate our hearts, work deeply in us. And Lord, we pray that you would do that and continue to do that tonight as we read your word and reflect on it. May the very same spirit that inspired the writers continue to speak to us, bringing it alive, convicting our hearts, transforming us, changing us, and empowering us to go out and to live it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, scripture reading tonight is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, if you turn to it. Luke 19, and we are going to start at verse 41. This is part of the story of Jesus' triumphal entry, which may seem like an odd text at this time of year. Uh, I hope it makes sense in a few minutes as we explain it. Let's read it now together. As he approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus, and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. This is God's word. Amen. I felt a mission call when I was very young. I was only seven or eight years old when I said to my parents and some of my grandparents, I think God is calling me into ministry. And to be honest, I mean, there's, there's God's call and there's that divine thing, but I think my grandparents especially uh, played a role in this in God's providence. They kept just feeding me uh, missionary biographies and autobiographies. And, and as I read them, I was just struck over and over again at, at these people who would give their lives for the cause of the gospel who would leave comfort and status and everything behind, cross cultures, cross seas in ways, and at the time, that were much more challenging and much more costly than even today. And I often just thought, what motivates someone to do that? What motivates a Hudson Taylor or, or a, a Carey or, or a Livingston to do something like this? And all the men and women who were part of that the famous ones and the not-so-famous ones. What motivates people to go and bring the gospel to people who've not heard it? And as I grew up, that's something that stuck with me and I had to reflect on over and over and over again. But the question for you tonight is what might con 
compel you, motivate you to do the very same thing. Not necessarily to cross an ocean, but what would motivate you to go and live into the call on every Christian's life, which is a missionary call? When you serve a missionary God and he calls you into life with him, you begin to discover wherever you live and whoever you're called to, you actually have a missionary call on your life. Now, I didn't end up crossing the ocean. I did something far more scary. I came from Western Canada to Central Canada. That's, that's way worse. So, A number of years ago, as I was just doing daily Bible readings, I was asking that question kind of reverberating in my, in my heart. What motivates this? I came across this passage and it just struck me to the core. Here is Jesus' motivation laid out for us in one way. It's not the only place, but here is one of the places in Scripture that shows Jesus' heart for people, Jesus' heart for the city. As he's going in this triumphal entry, as people are celebrating him, and as he knows he's about to go to the cross, Jesus weeps over the city as he sees it. Two places where we know that Jesus wept. One was, of course, at the tomb of Lazarus. But here's another one. He weeps over a city that does not recognize him and know him. Now, I'm going to put this, the points tonight in questions. The passage shows Jesus' heart, what he saw, how he felt, and how it led him to act. But I want us to ask the questions of ourselves. What do you see? What do you see when you see your city, your neighbors, your coworkers? What does it do to your heart? And what does it call you and compel you to do? We see here Jesus' example in this, and it calls us to begin to see that we too need the vision, the heart, and the power of Jesus Christ to engage our world, whatever place that is that he's calling us to, to engage our city and world for Jesus Christ. First question, though, is what do you see? Verses 41 to 44, we see here that Jesus saw spiritual blindness in the city of Jerusalem as he looked at their condition. I mean, he was journeying in. I mean, in one sense, if you were there and the crowds were celebrating you, lauding you as the great king and the Messiah, you would think that your heart and attention, you know, if it would be me, I'd be kind of going, wow, I just want to take this in a little bit. But as Jesus is pictured here in Luke, what do you see? He's weeping over the city. There's something going on that he sees that the crowd does not see. Jesus saw a city that did not see or accept that God was present among them. They were celebrating him, they were lauding him, but he's recognizing here that they did not actually grasp and catch the true impact and meaning of what was going on in those moments. Sure, some recognized Jesus as someone great, a miracle worker, a great teacher. Their hearts were compelled and drawn to him. They heard the power and the gravitas of his preaching and his teaching, and not like the teachers of the law that they were used to, and yet they were not completely grasping what God was doing in that moment. They were giving him the red carpet treatment, but you see in the passage, others were actually plotting to kill him. Jesus weeps over the hearts and the condition of the people in the city. 
representing really the hearts and the conditions of the whole world, not only who were alive then, but all of us. The passage is clear. Jesus also saw the coming judgment here. Now, this is pictured here in the judgment that would come specifically upon Jerusalem when it would be conquered, its walls torn down, surrounded. And this happened in 70 AD when under judgment Jerusalem is destroyed. And the general Titus here, really reflecting what's going on here, tore down the walls of the city, only left three towers. And the only reason he left three towers, according to history, is he wanted to show the might of Rome. Just as a little reminder, this is what happens when you oppose us. But Jesus is looking at this and saying, when you don't accept your king, there's actually a cost to it. There's a cost that's far deeper, of course, than the destruction of a city and its walls. It's eternal judgment. It's facing God apart from having an advocate standing there But Jesus sees this. The question then for us, if we look at the crowds, even those who who look at him and celebrate him and those who are plotting to kill him, the question for us is, who do you see when you see Jesus, when you encounter him, when you hear from him? Who do you see? Is he someone that you just look at and go, he was a pretty compelling guy and he was great? Or does he turn your heart against him and cause you to just go, there's something I don't like about this guy and everything he stands for? Or do you catch a grasp of who God is here? God in the flesh coming to them, living for them, dying for them, being raised for them as will happen in the days to come here. See, the acceptance of Jesus, seeing who he really is, either leads to great blessing or rejecting Jesus leads to pain and destruction here. Then let's look back, flip at the other side. When Jesus looks at the city, his heart breaks over its spiritual condition. What does your heart do when you see the city? When you look at the people around you that you look at and go, they do not know Christ. They do not understand him for who he claims to be and understand the power and the grace that he exhibits in what that he's done. What do you see when you look at your city? whether it's your neighbors, family members, co-workers, those you go to school with, whoever those might be. When Brenda and I moved here to Plant New City, which is just downtown, when we moved into this neighborhood, it was easy to get this obscured because we moved into a neighborhood that was, you know, kind of the one that was being gentrifying the one that was looking more and more put together. And the people we encountered in this neighborhood, as we got to know some of them, I mean, I looked at their lives and went, you know, in some ways their lives are far more put together than mine. I mean, for real. I mean, they've got so many things, far more together. And it was easy to get this blindness there that to not look just at the externals of their situation and to look deeper like Jesus did, to look at the true spiritual condition of their hearts that apart from God coming to them in Jesus, they were spiritually lost. They stood under judgment apart from God's grace. What do you see when you look at your city? E.L. Moody was a famous evangelist, American evangelist, 
went over to Britain to preach a number of places, and thousands came to Christ. Now, he's an interesting character, and he really kind of upset a number of the British clergy who were known to be quite posh and polished in the way that they preached. And some of them actually kind of got upset with him because here's a guy who'd only had, I think, something like a grade six education. His sermons were super simple, and yet they were looking at it, and thousands of people were coming to Christ. And a number of the, the ministers confessed that, you know, they're kind of jealous about this. How on earth is God using this schmuck? A number of them actually went to one of his hotel rooms where he was staying, and they said, can you explain to us how you, with such a low education and such a simple understanding and explanation of the gospel, how can you explain what God is doing here? El Moody was willing to engage them. He walked over to the window and he called. There was three men, that, three clergy that came to him he said, come over to the window. Tell me what you see. They looked out over the city. One of them was like, I'm not sure what he's doing here, but I mean, I see a playground and there's some kids playing there. Said, okay. Called over the next clergy member. What do you see? He goes, well, basically the same thing, but there's you know, an older couple walking along holding hands. Called the third man over. And he goes, well, I mean, there's, there's, in the distance, there's another couple there as well. And they were puzzled. What, why, are you, why are you asking this? What, what do you see when you look out there? Listen to what he said. D.L. Moody said, I see countless thousands of souls that will one day spend eternity in hell if they do not find a Savior. Each of them looked out over the same city. Each of them saw the same physical picture one of them was cut to the heart over the spiritual condition and was moved to compassion and prayer and mission because he saw the spiritual condition of the city, much like Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and saw its spiritual condition. If you do not see your city and the people in it and their true spiritual condition, I think we have to ask ourselves as Christians, why? What's blinding us? Are we just not paying attention? Or is it actually a deeper heart condition, one that Brenda and I had to wrestle with? Are we just indifferent? Are we cold? Are we apathetic? Are we distracted? Or we who are supposed to be, have eyes open to the gospel and the glory of Jesus and what he's done, are we actually blind to the spiritual condition of the people that God has put us among to be missionaries here? What do you see? Second question is this, you see in verse 41, what does it do to your heart? Now, of course, we've already said this, when Jesus looked over and saw the hearts and the people that he was going into that city to die for, it cut him to the heart and he wept. It broke his heart and led to tears. As he approached the city, he saw the city and he wept for it, the text tells us. The Gospels regularly note over and over again Jesus' compassion for people when he saw the brokenness of the human condition, whether it was physical or spiritual. Over and over again, it tells us he was moved to compassion and what happened then? He, he healed them, he came to them, he spoke to them. 
He had a compassionate heart that saw their spiritual conditions, that saw the brokenness of their lives and the reality of sin and death and everything that was breaking into their lives. And his heart broke over the lost people that he encountered. How about your heart? How do the lost people in your life affect you? I don't ask it just as a rhetorical question to you. I ask it back to myself. When you see them and God actually opens your eyes to the reality of their spiritual condition, does it cut you to the core of your being? When's the last time that you were broken over the lost people in your life, whoever they are? When's the last time you wept over your city? When's the last time that you were moved to deep prayer over the spiritual condition of the people here in Hamilton or wherever you find yourself. And when you pray, does it move your heart to compassion? Over and over again, as I walk and I pray and I prayer walk in various neighborhoods, I don't just pray for the people around who are lost and sinful and broken and apart from God. I have to pray for my heart. God, would you break my heart for the spiritual reality here? And would you move me to compassion? And it may move me to do something about it. I think part of the problem is sometimes even when we do recognize theoretically, abstractly, that there are sinful, broken people who are going to hell apart from an encounter with Jesus and coming to faith in him, so many of us actually functionally, if we admit it, are unmoved by that reality. And I think that needs to change. There's a problem with that. It's a problem in your life, and it's a problem in my life. Our hearts, like Jesus, need to break over the spiritual reality of people here. Rico Tice, who founded Christianity Explored, who I know you guys use as well, said this. You are not evangelizing. Functionally, you're more passionate about something else. And he says this, so if we know why we should witness and we're still not willing to witness, then it's because our hearts are somewhere else. It's because actually what we most want is a comfortable life or a good reputation with friends and colleagues or a nice settled existence with our family and so on. What does it do to your heart? Final question is this. What does it lead you to do? as God begins to open your eyes to the spiritual reality of people, as he begins to break your heart and call you to prayer and compassion, what does it lead you to do? See, it calls us to recognize who Jesus is and how he acted. Jesus went and he opened the way to God. The reason that I paired this with the very next reading is that he went and he cleared the temple. He cleared the way in that court of Gentiles, that place where the world was to come and see who God is, to experience the worship of him. It was cluttered up with so many other things with the church of that day, and Jesus went and cleared it because that was to be the place of prayer for the nations. And instead, it was plugged up with other things. It was intended to be a place where it showed people the glory of God and invite them into relationship with him. But now it was actually functionally an evil barrier to that. Jesus cleared it. And far more in the days to come, 
cleared it by going to a cross. God in human flesh suffered, died, bled so that we could come to him. He saw our condition. He was moved by it and he acted. What does it do to your heart and what does it lead you to do? See, at the cross, Jesus went there as our willing substitute. The one who lived for us who died for us, who would be raised again on our behalf to make us right with God, to reconcile us to God, to adopt us into his family. All the great uh, doctrines and language that the New Testament used, it was all to bring us to God, to take lost people and to bring them in who were outsiders apart from God's coming to rescue them. And as he hung on that cross, the one who wept over his city when the women were weeping over him, said, actually, don't weep over me. He recognized who he was and what he was there to do. Because even at the cross, he was concerned for others. But he died to save them. Rico Tice, the same guy who founded the course Christianity Explored, tells an amusing anecdote one time of going into a restaurant where he was meeting some friends um, in London, uh, as he said, it was quite a posh restaurant. So he was waiting there, waiting for the, the uh, maitre d' to come and to lead him into uh, the party that he was meeting. He said, I stood there, and there was another kind of tall guy with blonde guy with thinning hair, and he said, you know, in good, good British tradition, and I know a number of Londoners, uh, they kind of looked at the floor, mumbled, you know, kind of a hello, and uh, that was that. He said, then the maitre d' came in and called this young man, into the restaurant. He said, suddenly it struck me who he was. He said, you know, I had stood there for a while and here's Prince William. It's Prince William, my future king. This is what he said. I'd just seen a tall young man with thinning blonde hair. What I hadn't seen was he was my future king. Identity matters. And while missing Prince William's identity simply meant missing out on a conversation with him, when it comes to Jesus, it's much more important to realize who he is. This calls each one of us to recognize our own heart condition. If you're here and you're a seeker or you're a skeptic, recognizing who Jesus is is not just a matter of religious preference or interest. It is a matter of life and death. It is one of the most important decisions that you will ever look at and recognize when you recognize not just some human future king, but your present king has come to you to rescue you. And do you recognize and see who he is? And those of us who profess our faith in him, do we recognize that this grace and compassion that's been poured into our lives and out upon us and invited us into relationship is, should be leading us to greater and greater compassion as we come to know and love Jesus. We begin to talk about him, share about him, see the condition of people's hearts and lives and share with them the only true hope that there is in the world. This calls us then to prayer and to witness because we're empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. That same Jesus who wept over his city now calls us filled with, 
empowered by his spirit and his presence and his power to go out in prayer and in mission as a sent people. Now, some of you may not be called to cross an ocean or a globe or a culture, but at minimum, I think you're called to cross a street. Or you're called to cross the hall to the cubicle of your coworker. Or you're called to cross the hall of your lunchroom to sit with someone who does not know Christ. Each one of us is called. This breaks your heart, and we see the condition of souls and recognize who Jesus is. It calls us to act and to move towards people just as Jesus did. Some of you will cross the city. That's the place that God's calling you to. And perhaps even some here, God is calling you to cross a globe or to cross a culture. Whatever that is, these questions should still resonate. What do you see? What does it do to your heart? And what does it call you to do? Rico Tice again. Jesus says, see people as they really are. Love people with compassion. Pray for people to tell them the gospel. Then go and do it. Let's pray. Spirit, we confess that often we are blind both to you and to who Jesus is and blind to the reality of the spiritual condition of the people that we live among and that you actually call us to be witnesses to of your grace and identity and power. Would you open our eyes, open our hearts, and empower us to follow you into the heart of our city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace
Uh, I invite questions. Um, those of you who are here, uh, feel free to raise your hand. A couple came in by text. I'll start with uh, one of those first. Uh, question is this, do you think the doctrine of election makes Christians sit back? It seems God has it all worked out regardless of our sinful input. Uh, it's, a, it's an excellent question. I think uh, for those of us who understand and emphasize this doctrine from a Reformed and Presbyterian uh, side of Christian faith, uh, because it's a very biblical doctrine, and it's a beautiful doctrine, but it's a doctrine um, that I think can be misused in this context to go, well, if God's got it worked out, that means I don't have to do anything. Actually, the doctrine of election, when you look at it, uh, Paul says when you're called in and you've been reconciled back to God, he actually gives you a mission and a task that he empowers you for. Uh, the doctrine of election is when you've been called and been reconciled back to God and experienced all the glory and grace of Jesus poured into your heart and life, the love of God poured into your life, it actually calls you into the ministry of reconciliation, into the message of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. So when you're called, you're not just called into relationship with God, me and my private Jesus. It actually means that you are called into the mission that God, Paul says in that passage, as, God were, as if God were making his appeal through you. And he doesn't give us a task that he doesn't empower us for. And I think this actually brings us back to a second part of the doctrine of election that I think is very beautiful and helpful here. It's comforting when we go out and as we pray and as we share our faith and our experience of Christ with others. The doctrine of election says it's not on me. It's not up to how eloquent I am, how polished I am. It's not up to me to have that all worked out and as if the results of someone coming to faith are all on me, but I am called to share my faith. I am called to point them to the reconciling God in Christ. And if it means that it's not all on me, I don't get the credit when he brings people to faith. Praise God. If you want more on that, J.I. Packer, uh, incredible book many years ago, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, will unpack that more uh, for you. Uh, another one here, how can we weep for the lost without getting emotionally overwhelmed? Are there seasons in life where this is more necessary than at other times? Uh, great question again. I think there are seasons where God pricks our heart more on this. That's certainly been my experience anyway. Uh, but I think as the Spirit stirs in us and he works in us, opens our eyes not only to our spiritual condition, but to the spiritual condition of those around us, I think we walk in with a greater awareness that he is going to use us. And when I actually recognize, I mean, and I think of some of the people just here on this street, where you guys are situated and I live, I mean, I think as I enter into conversation with them, I have to constantly be going back again. That on the outside, their lives look very put together, but as I recognize they are lost apart from Christ, it means I enter into that relationship from a different vantage point. I enter prayerfully and humbly, praying that God would use me to share Christ with them. And does that mean that, you know, if, if Jesus wept over the city, I, all I do is sit in my, my room or my office weeping? No, but I think it then, you know, Jesus wept and then he went out and did something about it. 
And we go out in the power of the risen Christ and the power of his spirit to then go and engage in the mission that he's already accomplished and continues to accomplish in the world. Does that, does that make sense? Anyone else? I think we've got time maybe for one more. Anyone else? Okay. It's been a privilege being with you guys.